We're going to be talking uh, through the months of January and February about who Jesus is, about Him, um, about how to worship Him in, in appropriate ways. Um, and so today we'll be in Matthew 14. Next week, we're going to take a couple of weeks to let Jesus teach us, uh, actually Jesus and um, the book of Hebrews, teach us about prayer. And so uh, we'll look at Jesus praying in the garden as he's praying for you in John 17 next week. So uh, that's, um, uh, we'll, we'll kind of head through this series. Now, what I want us to talk about today is um, this little story that's found in Matthew 14. And, um, and I put a question on your outline for you to think about. You know, in Oklahoma, as well as other places, but I think about it really with Oklahoma, uh, the more you read the papers and read um, biographical profiles, we're a people who are kind of a pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps kind of people, aren't we? You know what I mean by that? Uh, have you ever heard the term rugged individualist? When I think of that, I think of Roel Sargent. He was grinning at me. I couldn't resist. What are you thinking about, Roel? You got something on your head, I can tell. So it's not just in Oklahoma? It's not just Oklahoma. Okay. I'm sorry that I made that inference. All right. It happens in Virginia, too. Okay. All right. Well, isn't it true that as Americans, is that better role? Now I've offended the rest of the world, but okay. <laughs> is it true as Americans, uh, we love those stories of people who have, uh, have become heroes, the gallant soldier, the dynamic business person, the athlete who performs under pressure in the big game, um, the bystander who puts their life on the line to save somebody's life. Um, uh, we admire that rugged individual. We, something I read this week, though, suggests this. Perhaps we, are, uh, we celebrate self-reliance because, down deep, we kind of want to run our lives by ourselves. Perhaps that's at the, at the basis of it. We prefer to live our life our own way. Now, what we've got to understand is people in the Scripture struggled with this a little bit too. But they learned, despite their problems and despite failing sometimes, they learned along the way that, um, that they couldn't be self-reliant. People in the Bible learned... Um, uh, they weren't distinguished by the depth of their inner resources, but they were distinguished by uh, becoming people who re reacted, although imperfectly on occasion, to hard times, not with personal resolve, but with a reliance on God's goodness, on His leading hand, His guiding hand. And we're going to look at a person that kind of exemplifies that today in the person of Peter. So I want you to go with us now to 14, let me talk a little bit about the scene. The story that we're dealing with today takes place in Matthew, Mark, and John. Interestingly, it's absent from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and uh, it follows, typically, that we feel like chronolo chronologically, it follows the story of the feeding of the 5,000 people. Um, Jesus' was, power was very much on display in that feeding. But uh, interestingly, even though he had showed them his might in feeding the 5,000, which was probably more like 
10 or 15,000, okay? Uh, 5,000 men and their families, right? Um, even though his power was on display, it's interesting how limited they were in their understanding of this. And so, um, in, in today's, that's never more on display than what we're, uh, what we're studying today. That what we're going to talk about is set on the little Sea of Galilee. Now, um, it's basically a freshwater lake, and it's probably more likely called uh, the lake um, the Lake of Galilee, but often we see it in the scriptures called the Sea of Galilee. Somewhere, some places it's called Lake Tiberias. Some places it's called Le- the Lake of Genesaret. In Luke 5, it's called that. It's about 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. Now, uh, how big is Arcadia Lake, man? It's not that big? So it's bigger than Arcadia Lake. But to call it a sea, it may be a bit of a misnomer. Um, about 150 feet deep at its deepest place. Uh, it's in the north of Israel's territory during Jesus' day. And much of Jesus' ministry took place around this little sea of Galilee. He, remember, he did lots of his work in the region of Galilee in, the, in northern Israel. Now, in 1986, uh, the remains of a boat from Jesus' time were discovered buried in the mud near the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was excavated and is now on display. The boat's probably typical for the time. It measures about 27 feet in length and about seven and a half half feet across at its widest point. It could have been propelled with oars or with a sail and uh, probably is typical of what um, they um, were using in this story. Now, that kind of a boat was really safe when the weather was fine, but on this lake in particular, storms could come up really quick. Because its western coastline is full of steep hills that just on the other side is the Mediterranean Sea, there's um, a wind that can come upon them pretty quickly. Um, um, from um, It might be, um, these storms can, can only be seen kind of when, they're, when they come up on you uh, because they're hidden by the hills. In the, in the distance. So a small boat hit by high winds is in a bad spot. I read a story this morning about 1992. Um, there, were, there was a storm that suddenly hit that little lake with 10-foot swells that even uh, destroyed part of downtown Tiberias, which is right in that area. And um, so this is off of that, that uh, lake, and that's um, kind of the story we've got. Earlier, the disciples had faced another storm while Jesus uh, slept in their little boat. You can read about that in Matthew 8. But today, our story differs in it, in that, from that story in that Jesus wasn't initially present when this storm begins. He's not with them. Okay, So let's dive into it. Bob, did you bring your voice with you? Okay, and your Bible? Can you start us off right in the new year? Matthew 14, read verse 22 and 23, would you? Okay, now, we're going to get into this a little bit. In just a second, I'm going to want us to read several verses, so let me hand these out. These are all from the book of Matthew. Who'll get 2818? Looking for a hand. Thank you, John. 2818, uh, 9, 6, and 7. 
Thanks, Steve. Chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. And then somebody else get chapter 26, verse 39 and 42. Cindy, great. Okay, now, we'll get to those in just a minute. When Jesus, uh, as Jesus kind of dispatches them in verse 22, we recognize here that what's getting ready to take place is not accidental. How do I know that? Because he tells them to go. Would he know what they're getting ready to get into? Probably. Okay. So, one of the things that I think we can preclude here is that as they go into this difficult time for them, and you got to believe, they thought their life was over. Okay. They go in with two commodities that you and I need to kind of come to terms with. They went into this with Jesus' guidance. He sent them there. All right? And they went into it with his protection. Now, how often do I realize do I realize in the middle of a trial that okay, did Jesus lead me here? If he did, he's going to take care of me. All right? That's one of the challenges they're going to face here. So this thing is not accidental. Now, the reason Jesus sends them on, he's been with crowds of people all day long. He's been meeting lots of needs, including lots of physical needs. And he desires some solitude in order to pray. All right? This is another one of those wonderful things, in the best sense of the word, um, that occurs in the Gospels that is a paradoxical part of this teaching. Um, and we've got to kind of come to terms with who Jesus was. This is a, what I'm going to use the word here, a profound paradox. Okay, let's, let's talk about what, this is the Son of God, God in the flesh, who has to be by himself to pray. Think about that for just a minute. Let's read some scriptures that kind of illustrate it for us. Let's start with 28.18. He is the divine Son of God and knows that all authority has been given to Him. Yet, He needs to pray to His Father. I find that an incredible paradox. All right? Let's, let's go on here. Uh, ver- chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Jesus has a power that is only God's power. Okay? In, in this story, this excerpt from, from Matthew 9, he has, got, he has the power to forgive sin. No one else has that power. All right? He has the power to heal. No one else has that power. And yet, he calls upon the Father for help and strength. Okay? What a paradox. I think this is wonderful. Um, okay, let's go. Cindy, would you go to 26 and read verse 39 and then verse 42? Jesus regularly even though he's the master of the universe, consistently and willingly submits to God the Father. 
in prayer and recognizes here that the Father's will must prevail even on the night before, the, before he is to be crucified, which is what Cindy just read from. Okay? Now, isn't it interesting? What a wonderful divine paradox that the one who's in charge of it all, the one who made it all, needs time and needs a place of prayer. What can I learn from that? I better find a place, hadn't I? Absolutely. Now, uh, I got into a thing over Thanksgiving holiday where uh, the girls were playing a little game. We were playing Bear in the Closet. You ever play Bear in the Closet? I had never played it either. Okay, so, but Violet was the bear, and um, and Piper's supposed to find her, right? So she goes in the pantry. The bear is in the pantry closet. Here's the problem: the pantry light goes out after a few seconds. The bear got spooked. All right? So be careful what closet you go into, I guess. I don't know that you have to go into a specific closet, but I've got to find a place for prayer. I know that you did. I just want You and I are working together today, okay? All right? Uh, but isn't it true that I've got to go into prayer closet? I love that thought because Jesus says it. What, what that means is I've got to find a place free from distraction. He had all kinds of distractions in his life, and he sent 12 of them away. You know? So, here's the magnificent Son of God who created it all. If he needs time with the Father, how much more do I? Could it be any more plain? If he needs time with the Father, how much more do I? Okay, let's go on in the story. Here's kind of where, here's the scenario. Okay, he sends them out. It's dark. By the time they get to where they're going, and they don't get to where they're going immediately, they're in the middle of the lake. Uh, if you read the parallel in Mark six, he says they're in the middle of the lake. The waves are beating against the boat. They're probably taking on water. Wind is howling. And for, for a sailor, you want wind, but you don't want this much wind. Okay? Now, let's start then. Verse 24, they've been sent. They've gone. They're in the middle of this lake. They can't see shore from here. And here's what happens. Verse 24 through 27. Somebody read those. got to love it. Okay, now, here's what goes in your first blank. I've already told you, but I'll review, all right? They can't see shore from where they are. Okay? Do you like going on cruises? I know there's some of you in here who love going on cruises. I think I would be fine with a cruise as long as I could see land. <laughs> but they don't do that, do they? They get out there where you can't see land anymore, you know? <laughs> um, 
Well, they can no longer see the shore. This is a big enough place, okay, three, uh, what did I say, eight miles across? It's a big enough place where they can't see land from where they are. They're in the middle of it, and this sudden squall, this storm comes up, and they're being beaten about by this thing. Uh, now, let's, let's kind of review some of the details in verse 24, 25. What was the time? It's interesting. The New American Standard says the fourth watch. What, what, what does yours say, Karen? Okay, that from what I read, it's somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. It's not, there's no light, okay? It's the darkest part of the night, you know? Okay, um, did you notice this morning, uh, when I went in the study to work this morning, well, there was an incredible moon in the west this morning, and uh, uh, I guess that's what's bringing a lot of this wind. But uh, anyway, the... the um, uh, they wouldn't. It, it it would have been a stormy night, so they're not going to have a moon to light there. It's dark. No flashlight. Okay, so it's dark somewhere between three and six a.m. Um, okay, they're exhausted. Now, here's what you got to know: they have been for a while in the middle of this. The boat is taken on water, and it is bail and row, bail and row, bail and row for hours to try to keep from. Uh, I'm watching this show, um, Survival Alaska, is that it? Yeah. Anybody watch that? You watch that? Uh, what I don't get is the cat that is kind of the cowboy in this deal, that they caught a haddock or some big fish, and it, evidently notorious for, for hurting you once you catch him. So he shoots the thing in the middle of the boat and, of course, shoots a hole in the bottom of the boat. <laughs> And they were bail and row, bail and row, bail and row for what? Okay? That's what's going on with these guys, even though they didn't shoot a hole in the boat. This guy is obviously not Mensa quality, but, but he's pretty tough. All right? Um, their hopes were fading, if not gone. Matthew reports in verse 25 with an amazingly uh, amazing economy of words. He just says, Jesus walked up on the water. I mean, what, what, is, what does he say here? <laughs> it, it just, yeah, he came to them walking on the lake. Um, let me see what it says in mine. He came to them walking on the sea. Now, I got to deal with this a little bit. If I'm thinking straight, Jesus has walked not a few feet. He's walked three or four miles if they're in the middle of the lake. I find that just incredible. This wasn't a casual stroll. I think of that often. I think of that, you know, he just decided to take a walk on the... No. If you read, uh, by the way, if any of you read Barclay's account of this, he walked through the reeds, okay? I love Barclay, but not that part of Barclay, all right? He walked three miles after he got on the sea. He'd been out on the water a while in the storm. Is that impressive to you? Do you love him? Is that wonderful to you? Is that awesome to you? Because in a minute, they're going to they're use the word awesome in an appropriate way. They were filled with awe. 
it started when they saw him walking up on, on uh, the waves. Okay? Now, the disciples, though, in verse 26, aren't relieved. In verse 26, what happens then? They are exhausted, right? They've been bailing and rowing, bailing and rowing, bailing and rowing. What happens in verse 26? They think they see a ghost. They get spooked. So their exhaustion turns into terror. Isn't it interesting here that um, this was obviously unexpected. First a storm, um, now an apparition. Uh, now, I, I first had a physical assault, now I've got a physical assault, a, a spiritual assault I'm having to deal with. Isn't that interesting? You ever notice that the trials I go through in my life have different kinds of components for me to deal with? They're not always just spiritual. Sometimes they're physical. Sometimes the physical leads to the spiritual. You get it. But they, they have dealt with this physical challenge. They are afraid for their lives, and all of a sudden, they have a spiritual challenge. they got a ghost in front of them, or so they think. Um, I, I think it's just kind of really interesting here. Their exhaustion turns to terror. Now, in spite of the storm and the ghost, who's not a ghost, right? Not sure I believe in ghosts. He says to them that there is no need to be afraid. Now, turn with me over to 28. I find it interesting here that Jesus has to reiterate this a lot. He's got to reiterate a lot of this in his uh, experience with the disciples. In 28, right at the end of this, this gospel, he has to remind them again, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am always going to be with you. Now the problem was, in this particular thing, there was no reason to fear. They thought they were alone, but they were not. Bob? Yeah, at that point, yeah. It's really interesting that they think they've seen a ghost. They're in the middle of the storm. And he's just letting them know they're not alone. I love it that he uses three simple, very short words to tell them this wonderful, unexpected truth. It is I. Hey guys, it's I. You know me. No reason for fear. They're not alone. I pulled them, an old, um, I've kind of a hymn book collection, okay? I've, I've been given hymn books for 30 years. I buy them at, you know, like garage sales or um, old books. I love to go through, you know, if, if Rhonda drags me into an antique store, I'm liable to be in the book section. And this is the Army and Navy hymn book from 1942. 
I figured it would have this song in it, which it does. It's the Navy hymn. How many Navy guys do we have in here? Got a few. Okay. The Navy hymn. Anybody know the title of the Navy hymn? It's usually called the Navy hymn, but Eternal Father Strong to Save. Um, let me read a couple of passages from it. Eternal Father Strong to Save, whose arm doth bind the restless wave, who bids the mighty ocean deep its own appointed limits keep. Oh, hear us when we cry to thee for those in peril on the sea. Now, the stanza number two is the one in particular that I'm interested in today. O Savior, whose almighty word the winds and waves submissive heard. Isn't that beautiful language? Who, now, this is a tough old English word. Who walkedst, who walkedst on the foaming deep. What does it mean that it was foaming? When he's walking on it, it's churning. Who walkedst on the foaming, foaming deep and calm amidst its rage did sleep. Oh, hear us when we cry to thee for those in peril on the sea. Now, if this hadn't been written in the 1800s, the boys would have been singing that on that fateful night, wouldn't they? Save us. You're strong to save. And so, they have no need to fear. Now, let's go to verse 28. Somebody read 28 down through 33. We're going to look at one of the 12's response. It's our buddy Peter. Here we go. Through 33, is that where we went? Yeah, okay. There's a little bit more of the story. We're going to skip that for the day just because I want us to really zero in on 28 through 33. Now, Peter, um, uh, by the way, if you're interested in studying this, um, John Ortberg has written a really stellar book called If You Want to, get, if you want to Walk on the Water, Get Out of the Boat. And uh, it's really good. It, it, but I'm not taking that particular tack this morning. But if you're interested in this more about this story and applying it, um, um, Ortberg does... He's just such a great storyteller and a plier of, of biblical truth. And he uses, for, for the whole book, he uses this story as a backdrop and Peter's response to it. Now, why do you think Peter asked this permission? It's interesting, isn't it? In fact, I'm glad he, Joanna, I'm glad he asked for permission here. Now, and one of the things I want us to catch is according to the way the syntax of the words are put here, even in our English Bibles, I don't think Peter is saying, if it's you, in the sense of, I don't believe it's you. In fact, I think when, he, when, Jesus, when Peter says, if it's you, ask me to come join you, I think what Peter is saying is not, um, if it's you. He's saying, Lord, if it's you, 
In other words, it's more, it's more of a statement of faith. I, I know that's you out there. And because, so you might could even put the word because in there, or since it's you. He believes that is the Lord. Don't you know? He'd have never stepped out of the boat. But his faith is weak. So, um, one of the things I think we've got to deal with here is that Peter has what I would call a holy ambition. It's a holy ambition. He wants to lead. He believes he's being called to lead. And here's his leader doing something nobody's ever seen, and he just wants to kind of get in on it. Make sense? I, I don't think that's much of a stretch at all. Lord, I want to lead, and if this is what it takes, okay, I'm in. Call me to you, he says. Um, and so he responds in that way. Now, now I, th I think we've got to commend Peter a little bit here. Lord, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Tell me. Call me. So how does Jesus respond? Okay. He responds, and Jesus says, come. And a couple of things happen. Peter goes, right? Peter goes, gets out of the boat. Now, we don't know how far Jesus is out from the boat, and we don't really know how far Peter strolled on the water. Okay? We really don't know that, but what we do know is that Peter did get out of the boat and he did walk on the waves. So Peter goes, and I've got to ask you this question. And this is a great question for January 4th. By the way, how many of your New Year's resolutions have you already broken? You had your four days into this deal. Okay. Um, thanks, Joe. Uh, here's my question. What is there in 2015 as it begins that Jesus is saying to you, come, come on? Uh, what is it? You know, th there are a couple of things in my life that Jesus is saying, okay, it's time for you to come on. Come on. This is your year. This is the time. Come on. I, I need to identify that. For Peter, it was getting out of the boat and walking on water. That's pretty dramatic. What he's asking you to do may feel just as dramatic. You know, I really feel like the Lord is asking me to, in this new year, to do this. I, was, I heard a story this morning about, about a ministry here that takes place right when we leave, uh, right down the hall as I walk out, that I didn't even know about. And I'm thinking, at some point, Jill and Randy Webb said, okay, I'm in. At some point, when, when God asked them to take care of this really special needs group on Sunday morning, all morning long, they didn't look at each other and say, we're not going to be training in this. They just did it. God was saying, come on. And they said, okay, you calling, I'm coming. I, I've got to love how Peter responded to this. If you're calling, Lord, I'm coming. So what's he asking you to do that you haven't yet said, I'm getting out of the boat? Secondly, okay, so Peter goes. Secondly, Jesus 
gives him the power to do it. Don't miss it. Don't miss this truth. He gives him the power to walk on water. I don't know where you want to put that. But I'm going to tell you this. If God is saying, come on, there is a strength equal to whatever he's asking you to come on and do. There is power available. There is an ability to do what he's going to call you to do or he wouldn't say, come on. I am the poster boy for this, guys. There is no way I should be doing what I'm doing. Sorry. By the way, did you read in the paper they're tearing our school down? That is so sad. How dare they tear down Sally's school? And I guess, is it gone? Have you been out there? I'm afraid to drive by there. I'm afraid I'll be in a puddle of tears. But when I was in fifth and sixth grade, Ain't no way I would have ever thought about doing what I'm doing now. Standing in front of a group like this, I would have been a puddle of mush. I still don't get it. He gives us power to do what he calls us to do. He gives, tells Peter, get out of the boat. Peter got out of the boat. He gave him the strength to walk in the water for a while. Now, what happens in verse 30, as Peter becomes distracted, his faith turns to fear. Note here that Peter does the right thing, though. What is he distracted by? The wind and the waves. Well, what's he distracted by? By the wind and the waves. It's like, instead of, I'm coming to you, Lord, it's like, okay, all right. He's distracted by the wind. Don't miss this. But his response is a good one. He calls out to Jesus for salvation. There's no pride here. There's no self-reliance here. He says, Lord, ooh, I'm sunk. Save me. You know, there are times when I've got I've to say that. So Jesus reaches down and he takes his hand, and that's an important point, but with his rescue also comes a rebuke. He had rebuked the disciples before when he came to the, when he was asleep in the boat. He's going to rebuke him again, even after rising from the dead. Don't you know who I am? But what I want us to catch here from verse 31 is what does Jesus do in response to Peter's really defective faith here. Okay? What does Jesus do? Do I? He, Jesus takes him by the hand, and he takes his hand, I want to say this, he takes his hand anyway. Estella, even though he looked away, he took his hand anyway. He loved Peter. He loves you. Yeah. Yeah. More so than Peter did. Right? And so he takes his hand anyway and he rescues him. 
And the group is rescued in verse 32, but I want you to catch this. This is different from the other. You remember the other storm? Jesus is asleep in the boat, and he, he you know, wakes up, rubs his eyes, and says, peace be still. They're not rescued here until later. Okay? Now, catch this. I want to go back and read verse 32. When they got into the boat, that's Peter and, and Jesus, the wind stopped. They are rescued before the storm is stilled. Honestly, they're rescued when Jesus shows up. They just don't know. And the disciples react with appropriate awe. Look at verse 33 again. And those who were in the boat worshipped him saying, you are certainly God's son. By the way, you notice he doesn't turn away the worship. They recognize that They know that God is the only one that can calm this storm. And they say to him, you must be him. This must be you. Nobody is like you. Wait. I think so. I want to show you what their reaction was, Wayne. Sometimes you and I need to do that. I need to do it when I see, when I read his story. Okay, let me close this. It seems best to me, based on the truth of of this story, it seems best to me that if I'm going through a storm in my life, it's probably time to hold on to Jesus' hand. Does that make sense? It just seems kind of rather obvious to me, frankly. That if I'm in a storm, I need to hold on to Jesus' hand. Now, I want us to think about something. How did Peter get back in the boat? I don't know how far he was off the boat, but I think he was a ways. All right? I think he had taken several steps. How did he get back in the boat? There's two or three things that have happened. Uh, did, G- did Peter get, did Jesus grab him, pick him up, carry him back to the boat? I, I don't think so. Might have, but I don't think so. A couple of options. A second option is that Jesus held on to Peter's hand and, Jesus, and he dragged him through the water, <laughs> threw him up in the boat. I don't think so, but that's a thought, and it's kind of a funny thought. Okay, he, he uh, body surfed him all the way, you know. I don't think so, but maybe. A third possibility. I've never heard anybody talk about this. A third possibility is that Peter took Jesus' hand And he walked back. Wow. Which means he was once again walking on top of the water. Now, here's my question to you. Have you realized yet your deep need for his power? As I face an unknown 2015, man, I'm telling you, if I'd have known what I was getting into in 2014, I would have pulled the covers back over my head on January 1st of 2014. And I don't know what I'm facing in 2015, but what I do know is this, that I'm going to need his strength to get through whatever it is. Have you recognized, this is how it starts, have you recognized your need for his power, his guidance, his strength to get you through? That's where it's got to start.
I want to give you a mental image of what to do to start that. You ready? Cry out, as Peter did, Lord, save me. And then reach up and take his hand. That's where it's got to start. Whether it's the unknown of whatever it is in your life, if it's just an unknown year ahead, if it's, if it's a particular physical challenge, if it's uh, a job crisis, whatever, a financial one, would you just say, Lord, I'm sinking. Would you save me? Would you rescue me? And then symbolically, even if you've got to do it in your prayer closet, reach up your hand and take his and say, okay, whatever it is, I want to walk with you through it. And I recognize today that you're going to be there with me and for me. Cindy? I don't have to have that much grip, do I? Because his has never failed. You're right. Read John 5.24. Okay, we'll be in John 17 next week.